Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Well, good morning. Um, at least I, I hope it's a good morning for you. I mean, if we're all honest, we, we came here this morning and we all have issues going on in our lives. Now, we don't like to admit that. And some of you might come, and be, come today and be like, I think I'm the only one. Everyone else looks like they're doing pretty good. They're still smiling. Things are going well. And we've learned how to play that game in our society. We, we know that when someone says, hey, how are you doing today? Oftentimes, they really don't want us to tell them the whole story, right? If we do, they might roll their eyes and they might walk away. And we have things like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all these places where we share kind of the funny things, the entertaining things, maybe sometimes some sad things that we're looking for encouragement in. But we don't always and usually share the real issues that are going on in our lives. You know, sometimes it's just the mundane, the, the issues that we're facing that we certainly want to bring up with everyone, like, ah, I really stink at budgeting. I'm not good at, at doing a meal plan and making sure that I get these sort of chores done in my house, but that's, no one wants to care about that, right? I, I've got this same argument that I continue to have with my kids, with my spouse, with my boss, with my classmates, but man, I'm just going to power through. We're going to get through it. It's going to be all right, you know, or might be something really big that we don't want to share. Things like a separation or a divorce from a spouse, uh, that kind of fight actually that you're having with a friend that you're worried might actually have the potential to break the friendship apart. You know, from small to big, from mundane to major, we all have issues. And, and many of our thoughts throughout the day center around how do I deal with these issues that are happening in my life? How do I solve it? How do I fix it? How do I best engage it? And if you're here this morning and you don't yet trust in Jesus for your salvation, you can hopefully still agree with me that our world's very broken. And much of our time is trying to work through how do we deal with that brokenness both in ourselves and with those around us. You know, it seems like we're we're floating around oftentimes in this sea of problems, bouncing back and forth from one issue to another. And some are are really small and kind of weird, like why is my front yard still yellow even though I keep watering it and fertilize it and I put bug killer on it and fungus killer? It's not working this year. And all the way to really huge, hurtful, sometimes even grotesque things. Like, why, why does that person hurt me in that way? Why do they say those sort of things to me? Why do I feel like I'm the problem? You know, if, if that's true, if much of our time is spent trying to solve the problems and the issues that come up in our lives, whether it's from our own fallenness and brokenness, whether it's from others in our lives, or whether it's just from the way this world works, it should matter the best way that we deal with those. And that's, that's the kind of questions that the Corinthians are actually bringing up in, in this book today. You know, if, if you remember, Paul, after he got saved, started going on missionary journeys. And it's on his second missionary journey that he plants a church in Corinth. And he stays there. He loves them. He preaches to them. He teaches them. He works alongside of them. It's a, about a year and a half that he's with these people. And it's very clear that he has great affection for them. And it seems like he wrote them often. In fact, as we drop into 1 Corinthians this morning, we read that Paul has written to them previously. They've written back at least once, maybe twice. And they've got this ongoing communication, really like a father. You know, that's what Paul says was his relationship with him in 1 Corinthians 4.15, like a father. 
I kind of picture it as, as a, like a college student. In this case, you know, the father went away, but here they're, they're left. They're on their own for the first time, and they're trying to figure things out. And it is kind of like a college student texting back and forth, being like, hey, Dad, what do you do with a rude roommate? You know, like, this weird little symbol kind of looks like an engine is on on the dash of my car. What do I do when that happens, right? Or why does the mini fridge stink so bad, right? <laughs> you know, except these aren't college students. These are pagans. These are Roman citizens living in the broader area of the Mediterranean, and they're living lives very different than anything Paul ever experienced as a Jew, Maybe that's actually a really good analogy to college. Um, Paul writes that they have issues like this, that they have issues like sexual immorality. They're asking about division. They're asking about social snobbery, problems with marriage and divorce, participation in pagan religion, order in corporate worship, confusion over the resurrection. I mean, they are writing about all their issues, problems in the church, interpersonal problems, theological questions, and of course, they're looking for help with, what do I do next? What do we do with all these things that are going on around us? You know, Paul, Paul's just a gracious, loving friend and father. He dives right in. He dives right into their first question right away in 1 Corinthians on division, things that are dividing them within their church. Who is best? And this may be something we can relate to today. Who's the best pastor? Is it Apollos? Is it Paul? Is it Cephas? Is it Brian? Is it Bren? Is it John? Is it Jonathan? Is it Stephen? You guys really need to get another S so I can finish the alliteration. Um, you know, Paul starts with this aspect of division, and then he quickly makes a beeline to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, where he's trying to get the Corinthians straight to the thing of the answer is Jesus. And not just anything about Jesus. He wants them to see Jesus Christ crucified. You know, why? Why is that his answer? Why does he want and think that the Corinthians need to come here? Does he not think that they're saved? It's a weird idea. You know, we may not say it, but we often think that. We think that, I've learned about Jesus and the cross. I've been saved. Now what do I do with all these problems? (laughs) We don't want to talk about it that way, but it's true. How do I solve or deal with the problems that face me daily? How do I navigate this sea of problems that I just keep bumping into? And this morning, one of the things that I pray that you will see is that the gospel really is the solution because disciples of Jesus Christ are made and grown in the good news of the gospel, right? Disciples of Jesus Christ are made and grown in the good news of the gospel. You know, Jonathan Dotson, he's a pastor and a church planner. He says it this way, if making disciples happens through gospel-centered going, baptizing, and teaching, he's going to use big words here, the semantic distinction between evangelism and discipleship is superfluous. Disciples are made, whether for the first or the 50th time, through the gospel, right? The gospel is what saves and sanctifies us. It's our answer for faith for the first time. It's an indication of the identity that we now have in Jesus, and it's the compass for how we should approach each issue that we face every day since our salvation. And what we're going to see is that the gospel is the goal, and it's not necessary that each issue might be fixed, but rather that we would walk rightly in that issue with God, displaying that gospel well to those around us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for our salvation and for our hope today. Would you pray with me again as we dive straight into this scripture? Father, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds? Lord, would we hear rightly your word in the power of your Holy Spirit that we might either come to faith this morning and trust and believe in you, And God, that we might also see rightly the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he calls us into into relationship with him, into relationship with you, 
through the beauty of this very complex gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's look at our passage again this morning. So it says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's fairly easy to see from this statement that the main thing Paul wants the Corinthians, and he wants you and me to see, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. But if we start to break apart this statement, we can see that there's multiple things going on here. First is that he talks about the gospel, right? Like we just said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But we also notice that right away, he has a second statement about weakness. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And he, he continues on. He has two statements then about nothing being from wisdom, right? And I, and I came to you, brothers, not come proclaiming you with the testimony of God with a lofty speech or in wisdom. And he says, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. And then lastly, he says a statement about God's power. He says, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul seems to want the Corinthians and us to see a very particular message of the gospel, a package deal put together that we don't want to miss any piece of it. So the question is, why each of these statements? What are each of these trying to unpack about the gospel for us that we might not forget? And lucky for us, Paul, like a good teacher and like many parents and and pastors and preachers, much to the chagrin of students and, and kids everywhere, does something that they all do. He repeats himself. Right? 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 is actually just a repetition of what Paul's just said in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31, just the shorter version. So let's go back. We're going to look at the longer version. So if you've got your Bibles, look at that just a little bit back. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. Here's what he says. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And praise God for the longer statement there. And like many students, we want the short and concise one, but I'm glad Paul unpacked it and said all those things. And for those of you who are visual, here's an overlay of the different sections and how they, they relate in this. Oh, the colors don't come through. That's really sad, so that's not helpful at all. There's a lot of overlap between verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31 and 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. 
Those two are overlapped, but the rest of the colors aren't there, so we'll move on. Uh, So let's start with the first section on the gospel, right? The gospel. Here's what he said in the two different sections. He said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he also said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Again, we wondered, why is Paul bringing them back to the gospels? Is Is he worried that they're not saved? And if we continue to read on in 1 Corinthians, we find out that's not true at all. In fact, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some are fallen asleep. Then at last he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You know, Paul has shared the gospel with them, and he actually does think that they believed it. That's why he says, unless you believed in vain. So it's not that they don't know the gospel. And it is actually very helpful here because Paul explains in a really short sentence what he thinks the gospel is. It's that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. It's that Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the seed of Eve that was coming, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, came. He came, and as Scripture said, he lived a life amongst us. He died our death on the cross to take the penalty for our sins that he might bring us back into a right relationship with himself. He truly died in the flesh, but then was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was witnessed by many people who were still alive at this time of Paul's speaking, so they could go check with them. Did this really happen? And then he ascended to power at the right hand of God the Father, where he now reigns over everything. And that's the good news that all believers believed at least one point in your life when you came to trust and put your faith in Jesus And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, I pray that you find that statement beautiful. That God would look on people like you and me, people who are sinners, people who are walking around today with issues, broken, and that he would say, I'm going to come to you. You don't have to come to me. You can't work your way to me. The distance is too far. But I'm going to come to you. I'm going to live a life on your behalf that's righteous, and I'm going to die the death you deserve that you might be back in relationship with me. I pray that that is something that you love and cherish. God loved you. He loved me. He's calling us back and wooing you as a beloved son and a beloved daughter. You know, there are, there are people in this room, if that's new to you, that would love to share more about it with you. They'd love to meet you back in that prayer room. I'd love to talk to you after I'm done up here. That might be awkward if we did it right now. But we want you to think about that. Think about who God is, what he's done for you in Jesus. You know, and here, Paul, Paul is saying this is kind of a basic elementary truth of Christianity. And the gospel is where we start. In fact, Paul's a little snarky in 1 Corinthians. You know, he, he goes to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 2, and here's what he says to them. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. Paul's saying, I got to bring you back, guys. Got to bring you back to the gospel. It makes me think, how often do I actually think about the gospel every day? How often do you think about it? Is, it? is it top of mind? Is it what you go back to again and again and say, Lord God, you've saved me? 
Lord God, let me look again how you saved me, what you've done, what that means for me, who that means I am now today as your beloved son or your beloved daughter. You know, I wonder if Paul might write something like this to me, <laughs> reminding me again, you, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. You're wanting to move on from the most important thing, the foundation of everything that we do. You know, it seems like the, the Corinthians aren't looking at the whole picture. And what Paul is doing in this statement in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and even beginning in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, is calling them back to the entire picture of the gospel. And he says that by saying, I want you to see Jesus Christ crucified. You know, Jesus didn't come riding on his white horse the first time as conqueror. He came in the flesh as a baby. He came in meekness. And Paul says it this way when he writes again in 2 Corinthians 13. He says to the Corinthians, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul wants us to realize that seeing Jesus on the cross, seeing how Jesus truly came, the good news of the gospel for us means seeing him in weakness. That's the second place Paul goes. He goes to all these statements about weakness. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Weakness here is the same word Paul uses later on in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 when he talks about the the Corinthians being weak and sick. We're not talking about spiritual weakness here as though we're talking about sin. We're talking about the inability to, to, to be physically strong. You have weakness, presentation, even your reputation. I mean, we find out a lot of that's true about Paul, right? Paul has some sort of humiliating weakness or sickness, that that something's wrong in his flesh, that we read that in Galatians 4. It seems that he acknowledges it even here in in Corinthians, that he comes with to them kind of trembling and weak, not really impressive. He works in a very menial trade, making tents. He's very impoverished. He's very persecuted often. And he likely had a very unimpressive appearance. it's, It's interesting that many similar things were said about the Messiah. When Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah coming, here's what he says in Isaiah 53. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. God, the very Son of God, Jesus, came in weakness as a baby, in the flesh, nothing special to behold, walking his life all the way to crucifixion. Why should we not expect that our lives might be filled with something similar? Usually much, much less. Paul is arguing here that weakness is part of what God chose. It is purposeful. Paul is calling us in the Corinthians to live out of any apparent weakness that we have because it glorifies God. You know, he says it in his next letter to the Corinthians. He says, regarding his own physical weakness, because he says this, he says, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So this is Paul now. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, weakness is not a, a mistake for Christians. It's part of the plan, no matter how the world might see that weakness. You know, look at what Paul says about you and me here in this verse that we're reading this morning. It's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.28. God chose what is low and despised in the world 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Okay, here's a literal interpretation of what it says there. It says, and the low in the world and the despised he chose. The are nots, in order that the ours might be nullified. Paul literally makes up a phrase. He takes the verb to be and just says the not is. The not is is, so that the ours might be nullified. I mean, I don't even begin to know what all that's supposed to mean for me, but at the very least, I think I might need to think much less of myself, and maybe you should too. We, th- we are the not ours, right? The not is is. We're not thing. I mean, we're just, we don't even be. Like, God picked those. God picked that, that the ones who are, the ones who appear to be something, might realize who he is. Right? Praise God for that. And praise God. I mean, if you know yourself, like I think I know myself, I shouldn't be picked. There's no good reason. I mean, we are not the ones that God should have chosen. Right? We are part of the upside-down purposes of God. And it's the very wisdom of God and not the wisdom of man. And that's where Paul goes next, talking about wisdom. This is what he says. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. It was not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross Christ. Okay, we get it. It doesn't sound really good, Paul. Like, I don't know if he's just kind of stammering or what's going on, but he's admitting, like, this isn't going to sound like something that's going to necessarily be winsome to you, and I'm okay with that. He says, for it is written, this is the Lord, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but many were powerful. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's wisdom is very different than ours. I mean, we, we, like he said, are the nots instead of the ours. I mean, we are like the worst Red Rover team ever. I mean, we are like these little gangly arm people staying in there, like wiping snot from our nose, pulling up our 1970s knee-high socks as high as they can go, and just waiting for this group that looks like the 1980s Bears defensive line to run against us, right? Like, there's no wisdom in that choice. This is not the good pick. This is not the right way to win if you want to win by worldly standards. The gospel is not about that kind of wisdom. It's not about sweet talking. It's not about arguing. It's not about convincing. Yes, we need to know how to describe and explain our faith. We need to explain it winsomely to people. But ultimately, it isn't our words or our wit or our charm, right? As pastors and preachers, everyone knows that no one wants to come and listen to someone speaking or preaching for 35 to 40 minutes who's super boring. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with using wit or jokes or communicating in ways that connect with other people. But we are sharing the very word of God. We're sharing his plan from the beginning of time, how he desired to connect and bring us back into right relationship with himself through the cross. And that's going to be offensive for many reasons. Like Paul says, for people like the Greeks, it's going to feel like this is just not good logic. Like, who would choose this plan? If you're the almighty, sovereign God of the universe, who would say this is the way to do it? 
right? Or like he said for the Jews, some people are saying, if that's true, give me much of signs. I want to see power. I want to see fire coming down. I want to see you demonstrate that this can be true that way. Or also like the Jews, it's going to be offensive because some people are going to say, but I want to show you how good I really am. I don't think I'm quite that bad. Have you seen my, my good works? Have you seen everything that I've done? I mean, I mean, those guys might be kind of weak. I'm, I'm kind of a good choice for God. Why wouldn't he want to pick me? <laughs> you know, it happens through weakness and what often looks like folly. You know, it's similar for, for everyone. When any of us share our testimony, part of that story has to be about a God who meant us, met us when it didn't make sense, when, when, when we didn't really realize what was going on, and all of a sudden he opens our eyes, he opens our hearts. We begin to understand and know and love what he's done for us in ways that we haven't before. And that's what Paul wants the Corinthians to believe. That's where he comes to, which is God's power, that everything only happens because of God who is working all things through his Holy Spirit. He says this, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. All of this, all of this, God coming to the earth, God dying for our sins on the cross, choosing people like me and you, using his own type of wisdom amidst all the ways the world would choose to do things is so that it would be clear that salvation is only by the very power of God. It's only by his Holy Spirit that any of us are saved. When Paul's talking about power in this section, he's not talking about miraculous gifts, things like tongues or visions or signs. He's talking about salvation. That's the power that they were able to see, that God did something even more miraculous than that. He took your heart and heart, and he made it soft that you might want to love him. He took your eyes that were not able to ever see the reality of what was going on all around you all the time, and he opened them up. He took ears that wanted to be deaf to every word from Scripture, and he opened them. That's a miracle. Salvation is by the very power of God, that, and it brings faith. It's nothing else can do that. You know, it's always been that way. It's a long-awaited promise. The Jews weren't naive in the Old Testament. They knew they had a problem. They knew that people didn't want to follow God. They knew that people on their own would never want to follow God unless something changed. Right? There's entire sections of the Psalms, the Proverbs, and Old Testament books written about that. And God promised that one day it would be different. Here's what he said in Ezekiel 11. He said, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Right? We live on the other side of the reality where we get to see that God did that by coming to earth and dying on the cross for everyone's sins. That he might impart the Holy Spirit to those that he gave in the Old Testament and to us today and everyone going forward. You know, if we've rightly understood Paul by looking at these two sections of Corinthians, we can see that he wants us to remember that the gospel of Jesus comes in several ways. He wants to see that the gospel of Jesus comes not with the world's power, but with Paul and our weakness. We go to the next slide. Not with the world's power, but with Paul and R's weakness. Not to the things that are, but to the things that are not. That the gospel comes not with human wisdom, but with God's foolishness. And that the gospel comes not with demonstrations of rhetorical skills, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, said a little bit differently, Paul might say that he wants us to have gospel knowledge and understanding that shuns human knowledge, yet loves God's upside-down wisdom that is demonstrated through the weakness of man and the meekness of God, and that reveals the true power of God through his spirit in salvation and faith. The gospel message of Jesus, it's a package, package deal. 
You can't say you love the gospel of Jesus if you're happy that God saved you from your sins, but you hate the cruelty of the cross that he had to go through to get there. You can't be thankful that you have a good and loving king, but hate that he came in meekness and gentleness and mercy. You can't be upset that God's logic will look silly to many, but it's that very logic that means you and I will get to be with him forevermore in a new heavens and a new earth in perfect relationship. That's how God chose to work. And that's the gospel that saved us, and it's his wisdom. And even more to our point today, this is the gospel that also defines me and you. You know, it's one thing to accept the gospel as God's ways to save us. It's another to embrace it as the relationship and the reality that we live in daily. Christ came in a very specific way because it's the same path that we are called to take as we walk out our lives here on earth. You know, Paul says it this way in Philippians, as we read, as Rich read this morning, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We too are called to empty ourselves. We too are called to walk in humility, to be a servant. There's a future promise where we get to live in every comfort, in every joy with God for every more, and that we are promised that we will reign like kings and queens. But today, we follow the path that our God followed. That might bring some new insights to you when Jesus, talking to his disciples, says this in Matthew 16. It says, Then Jesus told the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? To tell you a funny observation, I got to serve with the little preschoolers the other day uh, downstairs during the service, and, and it, it cracks me up. It's every time. You're always with the little guys, and they're sitting down, and someone's going to start asking them questions, and someone always, out of nowhere, without raising a hand, screams out, Jesus, because they know it's going to be the answer to one of the questions. They just got to get it out there, right? And, and they're right. It's the answer to the question. It may sound silly to us, but the question can always be summed up in Jesus, And that's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians. He's bringing them back to Jesus, saying the gospel, this entire package, who God is, how he loves you, the patience he's walked with, the ways that he was weak and meek, all of that matters for you and me. It matters to every question that we might have, and it can point us to God's ways in each aspect of our life. And that's what's so amazing about this big picture of the gospel that Paul is giving the Corinthians and us today. The gospel reminds us of who Jesus is and the type of life and relationship he is calling us to. It's a life and a walk filled with weakness, wisdom known only to God, and always dependent on his power. I mean, that's why we can read the Bible and be content that it's not an instruction manual that tells us every little thing that we're ever going to have happen in our life and exactly what to do. It's bringing us back to know a person to see the way he loved us that we might know how to walk and love others, to see how he sacrificed for us that we might know how to walk and sacrifice for others, not so that we can earn our way into heaven, but because as sons and daughters, we want to walk like our good father. And as we read through scripture, we see that the goal isn't necessarily that each issue will be fixed the way we think it's going to be fixed. Some will, some won't. Rather, as we gaze upon God and his plan to save us through Jesus, 
we better understand his unique wisdom and the ways in which Jesus lived and died for us. And we can, by God's grace, try to walk that out. Right? And we can see the truth of the gospel. The most important thing is Paul goes through this. So Paul spends the rest of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians walking that out with them. Right? He takes that example that we started with, division. Who's the most important? What do we do? And Paul's solution is to proclaim that he and Paulus and Cephas are nothing. They did not save them. Only Christ saved them. They did their job. God did all the work. This is what he says. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? When they ask him questions about sexual immorality, Paul says to remember that we are now part of Christ's body, and he determines how we should live. He says this. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ's? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Even when they ask questions that we would never ask, Paul can have an answer for them. So undoubtedly, he could have answers for things that were never asked in Scripture today. Right? They take an example of food sacrificed to idols. We don't ever have that question. <laughs> what do I do with food sacrificed to idols? Yet Paul says and answers that there's only one God. So all food is his, and it's clean to eat it if you have a good conscience. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be, so many, uh, may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, we all, through whom all things and through whom we exist. I mean, some of these answers that Paul gives points to the beauty of who God is, what Jesus has done, and, and it seems to expect that we have a clear answer so we can know how to move forward. It, it, makes, it, it makes it seem like, oh, that's great, I can do that. And yet Paul keeps pushing as he answers the Corinthians and as he speaks to us. He wants to show how radically we've been redefined by the gospel of Jesus and why it affects every aspect of our life, even when the issues may not seem to be solved to us. You know, the gospel is not just an answer that we have been saved. Again, he's showing us that weakness, upside down, godly wisdom, and trusting in the power of God both saves us and identifies us now as disciples of Jesus. For instance, regarding marriage, here's what Paul says. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Oh, you mean God might have a different plan for my life? Maybe my whole life or maybe just for this season? I may have to walk in sort of that discomfort of my desire versus what God wants me to do right now? Hmm, not sure how I feel about that. Or Paul talking about the fact that he has rights to be paid for ministry. Here's what he says. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ooh, choose not to take up a right that I have for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. So purposely have a desire and lay it down that people somehow might see Jesus better. I mean, I mean, maybe if I was a pastor or a missionary, I guess I could like have a smaller salary and not drive as good of a car and, you know, not eat out quite as much, right? But I'm just an everyday guy. Like, really, is that that call to me? And I mean, as an American, I've got my rights. It's going to be really hard for us. <laughs> Or for an even harder example, look what Paul says when he takes the Corinthians to task for going before civil judges to solve their problems instead of working them out. He says, instead of bringing reproach on the name of Jesus by going to outsiders, he says, why not, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Implying that it will, if it will better represent the gospel by doing that. 
Whoa, you might say, okay, it's, it's one thing to kind of live with some discomfort that God might have a plan, and I can kind of imagine that someday he's going to change that probably. I can kind of go along with that one and lay down some rights. I mean, I guess if Jesus left heaven and died on a cross, I can give up something, right? But you're telling me I actually might need to, for the sake of the gospel, be wronged, defrauded, and hurt, lose my reputation, be accused, and not actually defend myself? Paul is masterfully pointing out that the same offenses that keep people from coming to the gospel the first time for salvation are oftentimes still the offenses that we need to continue to work through in our process of sanctification. We still find ourselves offended by the cross and what it calls us to, to love walking in meekness and humility, to love forgiveness and mercy, to love his upside-down wisdom that calls weakness just like Christ, to be happy that we are the knots around the R's. To trust that walking out our life amidst all of our issues today is more about how we walk them out than it is finding the solution. You know, for some of you today, the call from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 will simply be to love the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul is presenting it here. To trust for the first time that God has demonstrated love to you for, love to you through great price to himself through his death and resurrection. He is calling you to come and know him. To know a God who loves you and will draw you to himself through his own power, despite the upside-down wisdom and what may appear as weakness. And for the rest of us, the call is to remember that disciples of Jesus Christ are made and grown in the good news of his gospel. The gospel is a package deal that Paul presents us here in 1 Corinthians. Christ came in weakness, in upside-down logic, and without much flourish. The way Christ came is the path that we are called to as well. We must pick up our cross and follow him. We are called to live in the same humility, weakness, and God-centered joy that Christ did. And that mindset will permeate our life and issues and is truly the only answer we need for them. And I'd want to encourage you, go back and read all of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. See it through the lens of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. This beauty of the gospel and how Paul tackles issues again and again and again and points people back to Jesus Christ, what he's done how he's loved us as our way, our understanding of who we're to be as sons and daughters. Go back and read all of scripture. See this amazing big plan that God has had from the very beginning of time that you might be saved. That God might call a people to himself, that he might demonstrate his love in amazing ways and find yourself changed by God's Holy Spirit. Pray for that. Pray that he would come in power and make you and I different I want to leave you this morning with two complimentary passages. People preaching usually try to end on the high note, kind of just send you off shooting, right? Feeling good, excited about what you've just said. Interestingly, that's not always what the passage demands, and that's not always what happens in the actual thing you're reading. And Paul doesn't do that in the, in the book of Corinthians, right? He, sure, he starts in the beginning. He makes sure they know he loves them. He, he tells them at the end he loves them. He brings them to this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in the gospel. He shows them how it applies to all these different areas, but Paul also sarcastically chides them several times. You know, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you need today, but that's what Paul gave to the Corinthians, so I'm going to give it to you. You know, perhaps we would do well to hear a little chastisement, a small reminder that we may be looking for comfort of solving our issues more than we're looking to walk them out in God's glory and to hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So hear this, as a father might say it, with much love and perhaps a little or a large smirk, and some sarcasm. You know, parents and children, 
take note that parental sarcasm can be godly if used judiciously. 1 Corinthians 4, 8. Here's what Paul says. Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Brothers and sisters, do not try to live your best life now. God promises us rewards and comforts in the life to come that we can't even imagine. But today, we get to walk out and show the gospel of Jesus Christ amidst our life and all of our issues, just like he did. Not as kings, but as servants. Not as those who are, but those who are not. Not always finding a solution, but demonstrating the very gospel of Jesus Christ and how we live. And here's the promise. The promise is it will be for your joy. Right? This is the second passage I want to leave you with. Christ never viewed coming to earth with disdain. Walking in the wisdom of God and being weak and meek was never ultimately a drag for him. As the writer of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, would your gospel, the very gospel that saves, the very gospel that demonstrates to us your amazing mercy and meekness, Lord God, would that gospel continue to work in our hearts today? Lord, for the first time to salvation, and Lord, to the 10,000th 10, time in drawing us back to you, putting our faith in your power alone, trusting in you alone, trusting your ways and your wisdom, trusting your call to weakness Lord God, would you do what only you can do, which is take a bunch of knots and make yourself glorified. Lord God, thank you for choosing to use me. Thank you for choosing to use these brothers and sisters here in that way. Lord God, thank you for your amazing love in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.